0: Welcome to Question Period, I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, military readiness. We will be increasing our military presence in the Indo-Pacific. But no details yet on that Indo-Pacific strategy the Trudeau government has been touting for weeks. This as a blast in Poland renews fears Russia's war in Ukraine could spill into a NATO country. Is Canada prepared if it were to be drawn into a wider conflict? And how is Canada planning to increase its military presence in the Indo-Pacific region? We'll speak to National Defence Minister Anita Anand, then confronting China.
1: Not every conversation is always going to be easy, but it's extremely important that we continue to stand up for uh, the things that are important for Canadians.
0: A tense moment between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Chinese President Xi Jinping is caught on camera. What does this latest spat signal about Canada-China relations today? Former Canadian Ambassador to China Guy Saint-Jacques and Conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong join us. Plus, going green.
2: I do think we need change. I absolutely hear the voices that
0: want change. New leadership for the Green Party. How can the Greens rebuild their reputation after months of infighting and turmoil? New leaders Elizabeth May and Jonathan Pedneau will join us. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. In a world where the rules-based international order is at risk, is Canada prepared for possible threats at home and abroad? That question is front and center once again after an explosion in Poland on the border with Ukraine this week sparked fears Russia's war in Ukraine could spill into NATO territory. Just days later, North Korea tested a suspected ballistic missile with the potential range of reaching the U.S. mainland. And now, ahead of Canada's release of its Indo-Pacific strategy, the federal government is signaling it will be increasing its military presence in that region. This all comes as the world's largest gathering of democratic defense leaders committed to to global security are meeting in Halifax this weekend. So how is Canada adapting to evolving global threats and how is it planning to increase its military presence in the Indo-Pacific region? Joining me now is National Defense Minister Anita Anand. Good morning, Minister. Always good to have you on the show. Um, I want to take us back, though, to the beginning of last week, and I'm curious to what went through your mind as the defense minister of a NATO country when that missile struck Poland. I of course was very concerned and I remain
3: concerned as I have since February 24th when Russia illegally and unjustifiably invaded a sovereign democratic country. We will continue to stand with Ukraine in the short and the long term, and that's why Canada has offered its support in the investigation of those two missiles that hit Poland. Uh, We will not rest until Ukraine's sovereignty is restored, and that's why we also put on the table at the beginning of the week another $500 million, bringing Canada's total commitment for military aid and equipment to over 1 billion dollars. We also made sure to increase the length of our training mission in England training Ukrainian soldiers. All that to say Joyce, I remain concerned about what happened last week in Poland, but this is part of the long-standing concern that we as a country have had about this war unjust and illegal as it is, and that's why we're continuing to put aid on the table for Ukraine.
0: But what went through your mind? I mean, you are a defense minister. Um, You know, we are having issues with our armed forces, with the readiness of our armed forces, with the equipment of our armed forces. So do you feel that you're ready for this, should it happen? We
3: must always be ready, Joyce. And what goes through my head is to be as diligent and prudent as possible in these situations to ensure that we have full information before we are making decisions, making sure that we don't jump to conclusions. That is what I've continued to stress throughout the week and Canada will continue to work with our allies, work with Poland and make sure we're participating in the investigation if needed so that we can have full information on that particular point. But generally speaking, Joyce, as a decision-maker, I aim to be as diligent, prudent, and determined as possible.
0: So what do you see as Canada's role in a larger conflict, should it occur? Canada's role is to continue to be unified with
3: our NATO allies. And that's what we have stressed as defense ministers across the board since our meeting in Brussels in February. And that's what we stress as a member of the Defense Contact Group, organized by Lloyd Austin of the United States. Over 50 countries participating, and all of us are continually putting aid on the table. When we meet, we put up a slide that suggests where the weaknesses, the gaps are in the aid that is going to Ukraine and we all try to fill those gaps. That's why this week alone I announced another $34 million of aid, additional drone cameras, additional satellite technology and additional winter clothing. Of course we have expertise in that area and that's why we've put on the table 500,000 articles of winter clothing. It's getting very cold out and the Ukrainian soldiers need this equipment
0: to fight and win this war. You know, military recruitment and retention has been a big issue here in Canada. You know, is you are currently short of more than 12,000 trained members and even your Chief of Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, you know, recently told a parliamentary committee and I quote, "The military that we have today is not the military that we need for the threats that are appearing in the future." So, do you, do you feel, as your Chief of the Defence Staff, as unprepared as he is? I share his
3: goal to continue to build the Canadian military. That's why we have released a retention strategy. That's why we have released a recruitment and reconstitution strategy. All of this to say that we need to grow the Canadian Armed Forces. Why? Because when there are crises, we call on the Canadian Armed Forces for their continuous assistance at home during COVID-19, during forest fires, during floods abroad in terms of the protection of nato's eastern flank and training ukrainian soldiers in england and poland we will continue to grow the canadian military while making sure that canada is protected and we're participating in our multilateral alliances at home and abroad
0: okay i'm gonna take you to the arctic now because i know there are several issues that are um, that are at stake here so when you report from the auditor general states canada is unprepared again to address the changing threats in the arctic so the report states that canada's arctic is vulnerable to unauthorized entry and illegal fishing among other issues minister because the ice cover is shrinking and canada's ships planes and satellites need to be replaced how do you solve all these problems at a time when really readiness is a must Joyce I want to take you back to June When
3: recognizing the importance of Arctic sovereignty for our country, our government announced almost $40 billion over 20 years in an additional investment to protect the Arctic to contribute to continental defense and to upgrade NORAD and ensure NORAD modernization. So what we're doing to ensure further protection of the Arctic is to build a surveillance system that goes further and further north, that can detect new technologies in missiles, such as hypersonic missiles as well as to ensure that we are upgrading our infrastructure across bases across our country and to ensure we have the command and control abilities and technology to transfer data to the decision makers. That's the type of innovation and contribution our government will keep putting on the table for the protection of our Arctic.
0: So you know China also is another potential threat to Canada and you have been signaling that the upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy will feature increasing military presence in that region. So what is our purpose in that region and, you know, how can Canada's military presence be bolstered over there? Well, as I discussed in my speech at the Halifax
3: International Security Forum, jo- Joyce What we are doing in the Arctic is to make sure we have a continued upgraded presence. We currently have, for example, uh, two frigates that participate in Operation Projection. That was part of our ambition in sailing through the Taiwan Strait with the United States recently, and we did the same last year. We are also participating in Operation Neon in monitoring UN sanctions vis-a-vis North Korea. We will continue to have an engagement, a presence in the Indo-Pacific. Why? Because Canada has an incredibly important role to play in global peace and security, and certainly in that region, given that we are a Pacific country ourselves.
0: That's all the time we have left. National Defense Minister Anita Anand, thank you so much for being there and for joining us today. Thank you so much Joyce, take good care. Coming up, rocky relations. An awkward encounter between Canada and China at the G20 highlights the state of relations between the two countries. What should be Canada's next move as it gets ready to release its Indo-Pacific strategy? Former Canadian ambassador to China Guy Saint-Jacques and conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong are here next. Stay right here with Question Period. A diplomatic dispute. With Canada set to release its Indo-Pacific strategy this month, a rare behind-the-scenes moment could be an indication of where relations with China currently stand. This week in Bali, Canadian camera person David Harpe caught Chinese President Xi Jinping Confronting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the G20 summit. In,
4: in if
1: there Canada, is we believe in
4: part, free and open and frank dialogue, and this what we will continue to have. We will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we
5: will disagree on, and we will have to Let's create the conditions first.
0: Xi expressed displeasure to Trudeau for sharing details of an unofficial conversation they had the day before. After the initial conversation, a Canadian government official told the media that Trudeau raised concerns about alleged interference in the 2019 federal election. That story was first reported by Global News. Later, a spokesperson for China's foreign ministry accused Canada of acting in a, quote, condescending manner and said it's up to Canada to improve relations between the two countries. So... Is this another step back in Canada-China relations? And how could this impact how Canada deals with Beijing moving forward? Joining me now is former Canadian ambassador to China Guy Saint-Jacques and conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong. Gentlemen, good morning. Thanks uh, for being there. Um, Guy Saint-Jacques, I want to start with you. So what is your assessment of that interaction uh, that was captured uh, by, by a, a brilliant global cameraman between Justin Trudeau and Xi Jinping.
6: Well, this was a, an amazing sight. Uh, I have rarely seen uh, President Xi Jinping that agitated. He was red in the face. Uh, you could see that he was moving his arms. Uh, usually, he seems to be on sedative and. Uh, very quiet this time it's clear that he knew that there was a camera rolling and he wanted in my view to uh, humiliate uh, the, the prime minister and he must have been antagonized by the fact that the prime minister didn't wait uh, for the uh, translator to, uh, to to translate everything that Mr. Xi uh, had said and uh, uh, but I think that probably Mr. Trudeau was afraid that uh, Uh, she would deliver his tirade and then disappear. Uh, There is one uh, sentence that was said that was not translated that is very important. Uh, Xi Jinping told the Prime Minister, if you are sincere, we should communicate with each other in a respectful manner. Otherwise, it will be hard to say what the result will be like. And for for me, this was a a veiled threat, and it just shows how difficult it will be to try to establish uh, what I would call a minimal uh, relationship with China.
0: So, so Michael Chong, you know, why are you saying the Prime Minister went to the summit unprepared to represent Canada? This seems to have been what, what you know, us journalists love, these candid moments. Why unprepared?
5: Well, I think there's a couple of reasons uh, that he was unprepared first the government has yet to release its Indo-Pacific strategy, something they've promised for some time. Um, That strategy should have been released ahead of this summit so that the the government of Canada, the prime minister, the trade minister, the foreign minister could go to the summit with a clear position on where Canada stands on a range of issues. We've not had that. And as a result, the government's position is muddled and confusing in the Indo-Pacific region. We have some ministers talking about decoupling, talking about the Freeland doctrine, other, uh, other ministers and senior government sources contradicting that. Uh, I think the other reason why the Prime Minister was unprepared is that he should have taken action on one of the most critical issues we're currently facing, which is China's meddling in the 2021 election, the 2019 election. And I think here's the pertinent point. Uh, these are operations that have taken place on Canadian soil. Uh, and so the first course of action is not to appeal to President Xi to address this problem, but for the Prime Minister to use his immense authority, the immense power of the federal government to take action here to stop these operations from taking place in Canada. And I think that begins with coming clean with the public about who was involved in the 2019 scheme to transfer money from Beijing through its Toronto consulate to some uh, 11 or more election candidates. And, And Joyce, you know, this is not a partisan issue. Uh, this is a serious issue. Some people suggested that we're playing partisan politics with this. Nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that both Liberal and Conservative election candidates have been implicated in this 2019 funding scheme. But in order for the parties, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, to get to the bottom of this and to prevent this from happening again, we need to know who was involved.
0: So I want to ask both of you this question. How it, How is it perceived... That the Prime Minister, that Canada did not have a bilateral meeting with China, would have definitely probably wanted one. So let me start with you, Michael Chong. What is China signifying and what does that mean for Canada?
5: Well, I think the fact that we haven't, the government hasn't yet released its Indo Pacific strategy, the fact that it doesn't have a clear position on, you know, whether we're decoupling or coupling with. Uh, the Chinese economy, whether we're, we're adopting the Freeland doctrine or not. Um, I think the lack of a clear position uh, gives uh, Beijing an excuse not to have a formal bilateral because what you know the question comes up, what exactly are you going to be talking about because the positions aren't clear. I think if the government had taken earlier action to come to have a clear Indo-Pacific strategy, a clear policy towards the People's Republic of China, as well as clear action, to take uh, measures to counter Beijing's operations, interference operations here on Canadian soil, I think then the two leaders would have had something of substance to talk about. And so I think that's how you get to a bilateral meeting rather than uh, not having a clear position and attempting to get one simply for a meeting's sake.
0: So, Guy St-Jacques, do you agree with that? If Canada had had a clear Indo-Pacific strategy, which is a way around China to avoid a uh, China, would would that have been an easier way to get a bilateral with the Chinese leader?
6: Uh, well, I don't uh, think uh, I don't think so. Uh, frankly, I think you know we have to look at the rea- reality of the relationship. And despite the fact that Wang uh, Zhou and the two Michaels were freed more than a year ago, the relationship is still uh, very difficult. And of course, there has been a progression. And in fact, uh, when I look at what Mrs. Freeland said, where she said we have to rely less on uh, autocracies and do more friend shoring, uh, and mr champagne chipped in later to say that he agreed but then also he took a very important decision asking three chinese companies to sell their interests in uh, canadian mining companies then mrs uh, Jolie came out to to give uh, an outline of what will be in the indo-pacific strategy where she says that china is a, a, a disturbing superpower that uh, Uh, creates uh, lots of problems and that we will have a much more uh, restricted engagement strategy. It was clear in the circumstances that uh, Xi Jinping would not want to reward the prime minister with a meeting, Uh, and and in fact how he treated uh, uh, Trudeau uh, at the meeting he had with him on uh, uh, Thursday just reinforced that, that uh, he has no regard for the prime minister. Uh, he, uh, uh, he, th- he, he thinks that Canada is not an important country; that uh, we we have not learned our lessons; uh, that we are still a lab dog of the United States, and, and so and that's why, in fact, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to uh, to meet with the prime minister in the first place.
0: Well, you know, the understatement of the day is that it's a complicated, uh, complicated relationship, and we should know fairly soon what this Indo-Pacific strategy is, even if it's after the G20, uh, better late than never. Guy Saint-Jacques and Michael Chong, thanks so much for joining us today.
6: Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.
0: When we come back, green recycling. After months of infighting, the Green Party has re-elected Elizabeth May as leader. What does May have planned for the future of the party? Elizabeth May and her running mate, Jonathan Pedno join us next. Stay right here with Question Period.
2: I've seen too much stuff in the media about how we're a party divided and we can't get our act together. I challenge anyone here to remember any other party that ever ran a leadership race where everybody built the other candidates up supported
0: each other, built a team. The Green Party has a new and a former leader. Elizabeth May has once again been named leader of the party after three years away from the job. She ran with Jonathan Pedneau, the human rights investigator, activist and documentary maker. To make the co-leadership official, the party will have to make changes to its constitution. But May and Pedneau plan to share the party's top spot. After a disappointing turnout in the last federal election, followed by months of tension and turmoil within the party, which culminated in former leader Annamie Paul stepping down last summer, the party launched a new leadership campaign which failed to draw much attention from party members. So what are May and Pidno's plans for the direction of the party and can a new leader help the Green Party win back support? lost? in the last federal election. Joining me now are Elizabeth May and Jonathan Pedneau. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. I should congratulate the two of you, but it was, you know, I guess, a great evening for you. Um, But you, I'll start with you, Elizabeth May, because you're the first boss, the number one boss. You'll explain that to us later, but you have a (laughs) steep hill to climb. Um, You've had one-third of your eligible... Voters, green voters, mm-hmm. that voted in this last leadership race, mm-hmm. as opposed to two thirds last time, um, are you having a hard time keeping the room?
2: No, I don't think so. We had different rules this time, which meant, as, as candidates, we didn't have access to the list of members to write them directly. So there were, there was some. It was a short race; it was eleven weeks, and I think that, uh, given the general climate uh, of. A, a lot of members thinking, oh, I'm not engaged. We d- this was really quite good. And we will be engaging them now that we have access to the full list of members and engaging people in continued efforts at, you know, like a, a virtual town halls, getting together. We're going, I think we'll see a sharp uptick in participation now that members are confident in the new leadership. So and, and we're a good team. I mean, yeah. all the candidates who yes. ran. We all feel together, and that's
0: unusual in politics. Yes, but, you know, it doesn't really feel that way with all due respect. I mean, you seem to be bogged down with your rules. You don't get a full list of members. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, Jonathan, there are two leaders now. Your constitution yeah. doesn't even allow for that. So how are you going to go about? You're, are you co-leaders? Are you number two? What exa- how exactly does this team work?
7: Well, this team will continue to work extremely well together. We are very complementary. Elizabeth, of course, is in Parliament and is a sitting member of Parliament, an effective one. I'm outside of it for now, until the next election. Uh, There is a lot of work, as you mentioned, to renew and rebuild this party, rebuild the trust internally, re-engage the membership. And so people, members, Canadians will find me on the road throughout uh, the next many months, uh, engaging with them, making sure that they know that the Green Party is back and that we have their back Uh, and that is what we'll be doing uh, together so
2: to answer it really technically Jonathan will be by deputy leader until such time as we put it to the membership do you want to move to the constitution reflecting co-membership so it's a step-by-step process it was all laid out in our platform through the campaign so people who voted in this leadership race knew Mm -hmm. that there's a strong appetite for co-leadership which is why of six candidates four of us were presenting for co-leadership
0: so you said a few years ago that you were stepping down um as a party leader because you are the party here in canada when one thinks of the green party one thinks of elizabeth may you promised your daughter i believe that you were going to step down what made you change your mind the april 4th report of the ipcc and i
2: did negotiate this with my daughter she said yes mom you kept your promise in 2019 but if you run for leader again in 2022 are you really keeping your promise fortunately she loves co-leadership and she loves jonathan um The reason for changing my mind and putting my hat in the ring, which was not in my mind at all on April 1st, was the April 4th report of the IPCC that shrunk the timeline we have available to hold on to a livable world. And what made it 1.5 or 2 degrees, and not to get too much of the details of the IPCC, to, to hang on to that. We have to make critical decisions before the next election in Canada. It has to happen before 2025. And I kept trying to figure out where do I find a place to be most effective? And I went asking advice from many friends. Well, obviously, you have to run for leader of the Green Party. You're not effective if you're a member of parliament but not leader of the party. So that's, and then I knew I wanted to move to co-leadership. I thought that was what the party needed. And fortunately right
0: around then, I met Jonathan. So it was a very, very lucky sequence of events. So Jonathan, you have very little name recognition, probably outside of Quebec. How, you say you're going to go around the country and I don't suspect your party has a lot of money right now. You have to start by probably fundraising. How do you start doing that? How do you get people's attention now that you have gone through two years of infighting? Um, you know, it was, ah, uh, look, we all saw the headlines. It we it all It was saw more th- in the
2: media than it was yeah, in real life. It certainly there was yeah, much yeah, more yeah. in the media than yeah. I experienced personally.
7: I mean, I, I have to say, look, I mean, we, we still have a committed base of members who are excited about the Green Party, who believe in the need for a strong Green Party in Ottawa that will... Uh, bring forward the, cli- the, the fight for
0: one climate. But only of your membership voted. Yeah. That is not a media thing. No. That is a reality thing. So you're going to go across the country. Mm. How? Are, what? What's your next step? What are you doing next week or, or, or next month?
7: Well, this week I'm certainly in Ottawa. Elizabeth and I have a number of meetings to have with, uh, in, with, with our colleagues within the party. Uh, and very soon, both Elizabeth and I will be convening all of the uh, instances all of the people that participate in the various uh, bodies that govern the party so that they can meet in person for the first time uh, a number of these people have been going through the crises that you described uh, that we face as a party through zoom conversations and it's important that they meet uh, for the first time that we have a chance together to discuss and and move forward uh, and following that, January, February, I'll be out and about. We have, uh, well, first and foremost, I have to say we have we have a by-election. We have a fantastic yeah. candidate in Mississauga Lakeshore. So, Elizabeth so how and do I you will make a name for yourself? There. Well, with all due respect, I mean, I've been, I've been out as a journalist and a human rights investigator for 14 years. I've uh, worked for Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Uh, I have uh, some... Uh, network in Quebec and now increasingly in the rest of Canada. Elizabeth and I will be out talking to people. We will be engaging with students. We will be engaging with uh, the, gen- the general public. Uh, it's crucial that we also build a team. Uh, this is not just about Elizabeth and I. As Elizabeth yes. said, we have had good candidates in this race. Uh, there's an awful lot of good energy among Greens and we need to uh, make sure that it, that, it, that it shines. I have,
0: I have, I have 30 seconds le- uh, left. How do you unite this party? How do you get it to get off the ground? Because right now, it's a little bit in the shadows. How do you do that? Right
2: now, I think the clearest statement one can make is we have new leadership. We're confident in this party. We're working with our council. Again, as has always been the case, and I know it more than anyone, the leader of the Green Party is not the boss of the Green Party. But you have to provide inspiration, positive energy,
0: and you have to be able to say with confidence, we're back. Well, we'll be following you, on that. Elizabeth May, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank
2: you thank so you. much, Joyce.
0: Still to come, commission conclusion. The Emergencies Act inquiry is set to wrap up this week after testimony from federal cabinet ministers. What will be the political fallout? And are Canadians even paying attention? Pollster Nick Nanos joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. The final stretch. The inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act has so far heard from 61 witnesses and now it's entering its last week of testimonies. On the docket, eight cabinet ministers, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Commission will also hear from Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland and six other prominent cabinet ministers. When the act was invoked in February, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino said police asked for the legislation. But in testimony over the past five weeks, different levels of law enforcement have said the additional powers were not needed to end the anti-government protests that gridlocked downtown Ottawa. And more recently, we also heard that CSIS did not believe the convoy protest posed a national security threat under the law. The inquiry is looking into whether the federal government was justified in invoking the act in which Cabinet must have reasonable grounds to believe a public order emergency exists. So, are Canadians paying attention to the inquiry and what will the political fallout and legacy of this commission be once it wraps up? The Scrum is here to answer that. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill star reporter for the Toronto Star. John Iveson is the Ottawa Bureau Chief at Post Media and a columnist with the National Post. And our special guest this round is our own Nick Nanos of Nanos Research. Good morning to the three of you. Good to have you in studio. Still not completely used to that. Nick, there have been five weeks of testimony and... You know, it's, it's been a bit of a marathon here. We've been following it in the bubble. We're completely, you know, some of us obsessed with it, I could say. Are Canadians interested in paying attention?
1: Well, they are interested in paying attention. I think we should parse out, maybe, should I call it the goat rodeo, known as how Canada has responded or how Ottawa has responded to the... Uh to the truckers' convoy, and then the convoy itself. What's interesting is that when we survey Canadians on behalf of CTV News, about two out of every three believe that it was necessary or somewhat necessary to invoke the Emergency Measures Act. So I think for average Canadians, they know that it was a mess, but that they connect the Emergency Powers Act with the end of the convoy.
0: So, you know, in the end, invoking the Emergencies Act, Stephanie, is a political decision, so... We're set to hear from cabinet ministers, um, including the prime minister, so what question do they need to
8: answer? What do you want to hear from them? I want to hear what I think we've all wanted to hear from them from the beginning, right, which is what is the information that you based your decision on to invoke this historically never used before piece of legislation? And if we've heard anything from the last five weeks of testimony, I'm not even sure we have the answer to that question yet. Because you see that there are pieces of information coming from all different directions. No one was really knitting them together in what seemed like a coherent way to present to the federal cabinet and say, upon this, thou shalt make this decision. So what did they make the decision? What was the ultimate thing that was put before cabinet and they said, yes, this, we must do this? That's what I think Canadians need to hear, that piece of accountability.
0: So, you know, going on on what Stephanie just said, the prime minister will testify this week, this coming week. So... What's riding on? How important is that testimony? Uh,
4: well, I don't think it's that important politically. I mean, I think we've already seen the NDP has given the government a free pass. They've said they're not going to bring them down over whatever the judge rules. And I think, you know, we're probably going to hear from uh, ju- Justice Rouleau in February. We're probably not going to have an another an election for another year after that. It's probably going to be well in the rear view mirror by the time that an election comes around. And I think Canadians have already made their mind up. As Nick said, you know, most of them have already decided whatever the judge says, that this was uh, something that was required. On the other hand, I think the just, the, the, from what we've heard so far over five weeks, the legal case has not been made. And that, after all, is what this inquiry is all about. Is, uh, did the uh, government's actions meet the threshold of the Emergencies Act, which is that there was a threat to national security that could not be handled by any other laws. And from what we've heard over five weeks, the government didn't meet the bar. So So
0: they they didn't make a practical, uh, a legal argument is not made, but a practical one seems to have been made because once the act was invoked, Nick... It happened. People saw things happen. Exactly. So what could be the political fallout for the Prime Minister?
1: Okay, I think it's going to be very different than what we've just talked about right now because I think the big question is, Is will Justin Trudeau stay on as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada? And what role with his, will his testimony, whether he enjoys it or doesn't enjoy it or whether it's a good or bad day for him, what role it might play in his personal calculus on his political future, because the fact of the matter is, is he has been prime minister since 2015. Most people have firm opinions. They're not going to change their opinions based on anything that's said or not said uh, when he, when he testifies. But I'm going to be looking to, towards his demeanor and kind of attitude towards this as to whether it's someone that is looking to curry favor and run for reelection in 2025 or someone that might be a little crusty. Why don't we say uh, as he kind of engages in this because he really doesn't care.
0: So, Stephanie, you know, what will be the legacy of the commission? I mean, this is a first in Canada. Uh, we're watching this and seeing was there an abuse? This, Were they right or were they wrong? What will be the legacy of this commission?
8: Well, one will be to see if they change the legislation as a result, right? Have we, If we've used this legislation for the first time, and, you know, as John so accurately pointed out, it was, you know, the test, some of the testimony is that well, the legislation was a little too narrow and it didn't quite do this, and so does it need to be changed? Do there need to be additional thresholds built into the law so that we don't end up with, you know, what looked like a total goat rodeo uh, of decision making going in? Sorry, to sorry, invoking for introducing it. goats yeah, in the you, put it, you put it into my head and it's still there. Um, <laughs> I think that could be the legacy. I mean, if, if anything else though, I think that the legacy is, is accountability. Never before have we seen in recent memory a government decision unpacked like this. Yeah. Every email, every text message, every little Zoom chat, it's all there. And I think for the public to be able to really get behind the curtain and see what goes into making these huge decisions that get made on behalf of the Canadian people. This is really important, and I hope that the public takes it and keeps pressing for that kind of transparency. But it's an
4: ugly curtain. I just like to add. Well, I yeah. do, I do think that might be a, a deterrent in itself that future governments <laughs> are going to think twice yeah. about using it because they don't want this to happen. Uh, just one thing on the legacy. I do think that uh, Justice Rollo's uh, recommendations are going to be crucial because what we've the biggest takeaway for most people is that there was complete dysfunction. Uh, between police services and between levels of government. And, you know, God forbid, we have a real emergency. I mean, I think this was a public order uh, crisis, but it may not have been an emergency. But we have, if we have a real emergency and we have the same response from governments and police forces, we'll be in real trouble.
0: Are, are, are people judging the politicians? Or in, in your surveys, are people also judging the inaction of the police forces.
1: Well, I, actually, I think they're judging when it comes to the Emergency Act the outcome, which is why they're okay with that. But I think they also recognize that it was a, it was a hot mess from the very beginning to the end. And invoking the Emergency Act is sending a signal to the, to the truckers' freedom convoy that action is going to happen and that it's serious. So that was the first step in the solution.
0: Nick Nanos, thanks for joining us. Stephanie and John will stay with us. After the break, was it a diplomatic misstep? With millions of eyes on the viral video of the Prime Minister being confronted by the Chinese President, politicians here at home are wondering whether Justin Trudeau stumbled or succeeded in navigating the interaction. How is the video playing out politically here at home? Former Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay joins the scrum next. Stay right here with question. Canada-China relations are under the glare of the political spotlight. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's tense moment with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit comes just days before Canada's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. The policy is expected within the month, and the Trudeau government is signalling a tougher stance on China and an increased military presence in the Indo-Pacific region. So how is Trudeau's viral moment with President Xi playing out politically? And does the exchange boost the significance of Canada's upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy? The Scrum is here to answer that. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. John Iveson is the Ottawa bureau chief at Post Media and a columnist with the National Post. And our special guest this round is former Conservative Foreign Affairs Minister and former National Defence Minister Peter McKay. Hello to the three of you. Nice to have you. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Peter McKay. What was your reaction to that video? And, and what did it tell you about the uh, state of Canada-China relations?
9: Well, cold and getting colder. I, I think the, the dressing down that the Prime Minister received from Xi Jinping uh, was indicative of where this relationship has been going for some time, quite frankly, and not just in the history of, of the current government. We've been on uh, thin ice to some degree with China for, for a period of time, while Prime Minister Trudeau, I think, has tried to mend fences and, uh, and shore up trade relations and has made uh, statements in the past that he perhaps regrets about admiring their, their uh, basic dictatorship. Uh, That was perhaps uh, the most clear uh, signal or indication as to where we are right now with China, and that is uh, tense, strained relations. We saw it, of course, uh, in the saga of the two Michaels. Uh, We've seen it in in efforts that this Prime Minister and others have made to have China address its human rights uh, violations. Uh, We have uh, really uh, had a trade imbalance for a very long time that doesn't work in Canada's uh, uh, favor, and so I, I think you are going to see our country and, and others, our allies, uh, move in a, in a direction that diversifies trade, that uh, perhaps takes a different tact when it comes to our relations with China, more uh, more generally, and standing with our allies.
0: Steph, was that moment that we saw that face to face between you know Trudeau and uh, Xi does that hurt him political politically in
8: Canada? It's an interesting question, right, Joyce? Because it's a bit of a, you know, a Roshark test there. You see people on, on all sides of the partisan spectrum sort of parsing it in different ways. Oh, Justin Trudeau was scolded. By the president of China, oh, Justin Trudeau was standing up for Canadian values and doing his job against the president, you know, against the president of China. So it's an interesting division there, and it's tricky, I think, a bit for the opposition parties if you if you take the point that he was responding to what the president said by saying, "Hey, this is how we do things in our country. If you don't like it, you can lump it." I mean, and so what are the opposition supposed to say? Oh, he shouldn't have said that. What, what what should he have said in their mind in that moment? What should they have said? Conversely, what led up to that point? What led up to it was Justin Trudeau deciding to publicize a conversation that he had with the president of China. The president didn't like that very much. Well, you could argue, should he have done it? Should he not have done it? There, there's politics in that game too, Joyce. And I think there's a lot of different things that feed into this one. Perception eh?
0: is, is the whole thing. But, you know, he's being criticized for not doing enough to raise the alleged interference in canadian elections so you know it seems y- y- if you do you're you're, you're criticized if you don't you're criticized
4: yeah well that's that's the nature of politics right if you're prime minister you're always going to get criticized but um i had an interesting conversation with a senior diplomat who's watched these things for f- 40 odd years and he's, and he's no friend of china but he said he thought there was a breach of pro- protocol by justin trudeau here if these things are bilateral meetings, then at the end of them, both sides agree on a, on a, on a readout and you get an anodyne, you know, no incident readout of, what the, of the topics that were, were uh, agreed upon. If it's not a, an agreed upon bilateral, it's an off-the-record conversation and then you don't go out and brief the media on what was said. And in his view, that's what Trudeau did. To me, I think he was right to raise the issue of interference with Xi. But I think he then tried to score political points at home because he's in a jam. He was briefed on the interference in January. He did nothing about it until it was revealed in a a media story.
0: So, you know, Peter, we're also expecting you know Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy very soon. You know, Foreign Affairs Minister Mélanie Joly has signaled a tougher stance on China, and we're also expecting details on increased military presence. In the Indo-Pacific region in your view is that the right approach with China
9: I think we do have to take a more robust stance when it comes to working with countries like Australia in particular that are in the region but let's never forget Joyce that we are an Indo-Pacific country and uh, we we have to show up we have to be participants in military exercises we've had a ship that went through the Straits of Taiwan we've uh, we've been uh, somewhat present But just to pick up and to go back to what John and Stephanie both alluded to, and that is this basic understanding that when you go into these diplomatic meetings, yes, there's an agenda, yes, there's very often photo ops at the beginning, but to be able to get anywhere, with any countries, friends, allies, uh, those who you don't always get along with, if the feeling is that the, the, the nature of the discussion will be leaked, this will cause harm and will make it more difficult to have frank discussions even those difficult ones on subjects like election interference become difficult to have if there's no element of trust but uh, you know coming back to your point yes I think Canada's going to see a bit of a pivot it'll be interesting to see the substance of this policy because uh, it's been a long time in the making seven years perhaps some would say and I think you're going to see perhaps a shift uh moving towards other countries in the region.
0: So Stephanie, what are you watching for once this Indo-Pacific strategy that this
8: government has been touting for weeks is made public very soon? Actual action, Joyce? I mean we've had a you know a trio, a trifecta of ministers out in recent days who were talking about the need to pivot to the Indo-Pacific and we must do more on the Indo-Pacific. What exactly? What exactly are they going to do? What timelines are attached to it? What money is attached to reaching those goals? We really you know, the the Liberal government is very theoretical. They like to propose. And, you know, a colleague of mine, Heather Schofield, talked about, you know, we hesitate. We don't hustle, she wrote this week. And I think that's a really good encapsulation of where is the hustle. We see what China is doing. We see the build-up. You know, when do we hustle to respond to it?
0: What are your thoughts on that Indo-Pacific? We're all expecting that. Yeah. Well, I think that... the
4: uh, Madame Joly gave a speech at the start of this month where she sort of flagged what were the direction and she talked about uh, trade being not just an economic driver but a geopolitical tool. And, you know, China has been using trade as a geopolitical tool for 20 years and I think we're going to see export controls being used by the government of Canada so to use more or less use trade as a weapon.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see and it is supposed to be released in the next couple of days, maybe next couple of weeks, so we will... Have ample time to talk about it. Peter McKay, Stephanie and John Ivinson, thanks for being there. That's your question period for this week. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back here in seven short days.